Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I am a part-time school counselor at an elementary school. And as a school counselor, there's two different ways that I can approach counseling in my profession. One way would be reactionary counseling. Last year, I did a practicum at an urban school. And so I worked with students on a day-to-day basis. And so one student, I'm just going to call him Lewis for tonight to protect his identity. Um, Lewis had a hard time in the classroom because... He was exposed to trauma in his young life. And so when people are exposed to trauma, they have high reactions to small things. If they get frustrated, it can get really explosive. And so one day, um, the teacher came and got me and said, hey, can you come help me with Lewis? And Lewis had gotten overwhelmed with his math homework and teacher was confrontive about it. And so he just kind of burst out in rage and ran out of the room and stopped talking for a little bit. And so I said, Lewis, let's go sit in the office. Let's play a game together. And so we sat there and we played a game. And finally, he started opening up and talking about things. And so we came up with a plan for Lewis to help him learn how to control his anger and how to curb that anger when he started feeling frustrated in the classroom. So that's reactive counseling, right? I am reacting to Lewis and helping him grow. And he started staying in his classroom more and dealing with frustration more effectively. So that was awesome that we got to work together. Reactive counseling is good and it happens. But the best kind of counseling that I can offer for my students as a school counselor is something different. It's preventive counseling. It's me as a counselor walking into the school setting, looking around for any pitfalls that my students might fall into, and then covering that pitfall and preventing them from failing before they fail. This is really challenging because I have to be proactive. I have to be wise in what I see. I have to say, Lord, help me see it so I can help these students do the best work and be the best people they can be and find healing. To be preventive in counseling, I need to be proactive. And this really is a story for all of our lives, not just with school counseling for me professionally, but all of our lives. We find that we live life better when we are proactive about problems before they arise. So I don't really look at the weather app anymore in the wintertime. I actually drive, and when I start seeing lines on the road of de-icing, then I know that there's winter weather coming. Anybody else? Is anybody else like that? Yeah. And so that's why we de-ice our roads before the snow comes, because then the roads thaw off a lot faster. It's preventive therapy for our roads. It's why we save money and why we spend money wisely to prevent ourselves from going into debt. It's why we discipline our children and we teach them the good way, the right way to live. We teach them about Jesus while they're young so that way when they're old, they have these tools in their toolbox to live life effectively and to have good lives. And so living proactively really infiltrates in all of our lives. And the list goes on and on. So proactive means creating or controlling a situation by causing something to happen 
rather than responding to it after it happened. And we see God being proactive from day one. God isn't reacting to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. God, from the very beginning of time, sets a tree in the garden called the tree of life. And this isn't by mistake, because in that last book, the last chapter of the Bible, thousands of years later, we see the same tree showing up at the end of time when we're in the presence of God, and God has made all things new again. God knew that sin would come into the world, and he started proactively setting Jesus up before we even knew that we needed Christ. And so when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and following him throughout our lives, being proactive and pursuing him is necessary. Part of following Jesus is inviting other people to follow Jesus with us. And when we follow Jesus, this is called being a disciple. And when we invite other people to come along with us in our journey, this is called discipleship. Jesus told his followers, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Followers of Jesus were called disciples, and they still are today. And if you're actively encouraging others in how to follow Jesus, like you're following Jesus, you are involved in discipleship. So last week, we started a new series called Unshakable, and we're looking at um, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And this letter is actually the very first of his letters that he wrote to the churches that he ministered to. So we're doing a series on First Thessalonians called Unshakable. And so as we walk through the second chapter of First Thessalonians tonight, we're going to see how we are to be like the thriving church of Thessalonica. We are to be proactively unshakable in discipleship. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Paul is writing again to the Thessalonians, You, Thessalonians, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We are in discipleship together. And I love when we study Paul, we see this theme over and over again, that just like us in this room tonight, we are do to do life together as God's people. When we follow Jesus and bring other people along with us, we are unshakable in the motivation of our hearts. In this first verse of our text, we immediately see Paul addressing the Thessalonians as equals, as brothers and sisters. He goes on to say that he and his crew didn't come to Thessalonica to lord over them because they could have, right? They had the influence. They were the apostles. They were the message bearers. They were the leaders. They were the powerful ones. But they didn't come in saying, we know what we're doing and you should follow us like this top-down thing. Paul says, brothers and sisters, because Paul came alongside the Thessalonians to teach them about Jesus. And the way that the Thessalonians responded to Paul, we can see that we're to be unshakable in our motivation too when it comes to discipleship. Chapter 2, verse 14, we see the Thessalonians following Paul's example because in verse 14, Paul says, And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from our own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ Jesus suffered from their own people. And so like Paul and his team, like Silas and Timothy, the Thessalonian church was suffering persecution because they were proactively imitating the example that Paul and his fellow leaders gave to the church. 
And they even did this after Paul and his fellow leaders had to leave town. And just like that, we need to be unshakable in our motivation too when it comes to discipleship. Going on to verse two, Paul writes, you know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery for we speak as God's messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motivations of our heart. Paul and the Thessalonians' motivations didn't come from their own selves, but it was from God. The courage was from God, and their motivation was for God. Paul didn't try to people please. He wasn't content to make people happy. He wasn't working for people. He wasn't working to gain influence. Paul was motivated by the very heart of God, that self-sacrificing heart that says, Lord, I'm gonna give you glory. I am motivated by you. I'm motivated by your heart and the things that you've called me to do, even if everyone else oppresses me and pushes pressure on me and pushes against what I have to say. And we see that the Thessalonians were doing that too. Paul didn't beat around the bush when it came to the truth. He was willing to say the truth the way the truth is to be said because he wasn't worried about hurting people's feelings. He was concerned and motivated by the heart of God. During Paul's missionary journeys, he started telling people about Jesus in the local synagogue. So Dan talked about this a little bit last week about how um, when Rome would come and take over a civilization, they would take the people who were all in one country and they would spread them out to different parts of the empire. Because when people were spread out everywhere, it was hard for them to amass together to have enough people to coup against the Roman Empire. So they were weakening the civilizations around them. But this worked in Paul's favor in spreading the gospel. Because when Rome came and took over Israel and spread the Jewish people all over the known world, they set up synagogues all throughout Spain and Thessalonica and Greece and Rome. And so when Paul started his missionary travels, he would always go and start at the synagogues because that was his open door. He didn't have to create or work hard to make an open door place for him to tell people about Jesus. He would start with the open door he had, and then from there, the good news would trickle out into the streets, and then people from other races, the Gentiles, were starting to hear and respond to the gospel as well. But Paul understood that to intentionally disciple people in following Jesus, he had to start from the open door and work his way outward. The Thessalonians apparently took on the same habits because we also, they also followed Jesus and they got pushback, they got persecution. And so we know they're following Jesus in this way because they're being oppressed and they weren't giving in to oppression. I think a lot of times that when we think that um, about discipleship and helping other people grow in their faith, we kind of think about like, well, I don't teach a Sunday school class or I'm not a preacher behind a pulpit or I'm not in vocational ministry, so I'm not really involved in discipleship. But that can be the farthest from the truth because discipleship can sometimes start on our couch over a cup of coffee 
with a good conversation with someone that we know, someone that we love. Discipleship starts with honest conversations and pouring out God's word unashamedly into people's lives. And to coworkers, we can share God's word. Even though it might be inappropriate sometimes, let the Holy Spirit guide you to share God's word and God's truth in the platforms that he has given each and every one of us believers. We are all called to be disciple makers, to bring people along with us and help them to grow in their faith. We reserve preaching for pastors behind a pulpit, and God has called us to disciple from the couches in our living rooms. And when we share the good news, just like the Thessalonians, we must not allow opposition to cause us to back down. We must be unshakable in our motivation, just like Paul and the Thessalonians. If we're not proactive in sharing the good news in our places of influence, then we are being self-motivated and not motivated by God's heart. And we become easily shaken when we're, when we're not motivated by God. It's easy to think, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Lord is saying, Mandy, I want you to go talk to this person over here. And if I think, well, that's going to hurt their feelings or that's just really awkward and that's not going to please them or please me, so I'm just going to keep going, Lord, then my motivation is to please other people or to please myself. But when I'm motivated to build God's kingdom and do God's work and be submissive to the things that he places on my heart, whether it's comfortable or not, then I am being motivated by the heart of God. And that's what we need to do as disciples is to be motivated by the heart of God. If we aren't motivated by what's important to God, then we can start allowing weeds and lies to sprout in places that take over and choke out the truth of Jesus. So when, um, when we first moved here seven years ago, our house has a, a fenced-in dog run on the side of it, and it's kind of a big area, so it's just full of, like, white gravel, and we don't have a dog, and so it's always one of those places in our yard, it's like, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and so when we first moved into our house, it was really clear, and it was just white rocks, and it was pretty, you know, it was pretty, it was clean, um, but then I started noticing, like, two or three little weeds poking up through there, and I thought, oh, I'll get them later. I have other things to do. And, you know, with a little bit of time and a little bit of rain and a little bit of sun and a whole lot of procrastination, those little bitty weeds turned into, like, five foot by four thistle bushes, and they were happy thistle bushes, and they were productive thistle bushes, and they produced pollen every, everywhere, like past the dog run and into the yard. And what I wasn't careful to do to pull those weeds, it would have taken me like 30 seconds, not that long at all, a pair of gloves, mind you, but um, if I would have pulled them earlier, I wouldn't have had such a mess on my hands. But because I let it go, the weeds overran, and I, it took days to clear out that dog run. And it's something I have to revisit every year now. And so if we're not careful in sharing the truth, and, and we aren't careful when we see a weed of falsehood grow up in, in our own heart or in the heart of our children or in the heart of our family members, or heart of a fellow believer, and we just say, oh, they can believe what they want to believe. They're fine. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I don't want them to think I'm judging them. Then that small weed can grow bigger and choke out the word of God that brings life. And when we're we're motivated by the careful heart of God, 
then we can rescue people from being choked out from the word and the truth of God. I actually ran into a lady at Myers today, um, and I, I, it was supposed to be like a really short conversation, and I'm a really good listener, and I'm, sometimes I'm not sure how to get out of conversations quickly. Um, and so, you know, we started on one topic, and then it led to um, gardening, because she had all this gardening stuff in her basket. And I said, so are you gardening? And she said, yes. And then it turned into these little tidbits that if you get like a stand-up pot, then you can drill holes in the bottom, and then you can place little pebbles by each hole, and then cut a screen, like a screen door, cut a screen out and put it on the bottom, and then fill it with soil, because when you water it, all the water drains out, and then the soil doesn't get moldy anymore, and your plants get really bushy and beautiful. And so I learned something today <laughs> about gardening. Um, but it actually, it made me think, too, that when we are discipling people, just like that lady took so much care to proactively set up her potted plants so they could thrive and be beautiful. We need to be proactive and careful and intentional in the way that we disciple people around us, that we don't let those weeds grow, and that we set up soil that's ready to receive the word of God, that we take care in, in giving the word. And so what are you motivated by tonight? Maybe you think that leading other people to Jesus takes a direct call from the Lord to go overseas as a missionary or to go on a reach team through our church or to go on a, a missions trip or an outreach through a local Christian organization. And those are all really great ways to share Jesus' good news, right? I'm not against that. I advocate for that. Get involved when those opportunities arise. Those are awesome ways. But today... What is your open door today? What is your open door tomorrow? Who are the people that God has placed in your life? What is the platform that God has given you that you can use to disciple people around you? Discipleship requires unshakable motivation, and discipleship also requires unshakable focus. So moving on to verse 7. Paul writes, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And you know that we, are treated, that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. In this excerpt of Paul's letter, he reminds the Thessalonians that when he and his team came to tell them about Jesus, they came as children, as a mother, and as a father. He uses all of these metaphors of family. So I want you to remember that when Paul was preaching, he was preaching to a society that had very specific gender roles. It's really different than in America, but children were expected to do this role in, in a relationship, in a family, and mothers were expected to do this role, and fathers were expected to do this role. Let's try to get in Paul's perspective when we're looking at this here. So first, Paul writes that he and the other leaders were like children among the Thessalonians. They were leaders and teachers, and yet they were humble 
and willing to grow alongside the Thessalonians. They knew, hey, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news. God has used us in amazing ways, miraculous ways. We have planted church throughout, churches throughout this empire. We have the authority of God on our lives, but we still have things to learn when it comes to following Jesus. So they came alongside the Thessalonians as children and said, let's do this together. Let's grow together. You're a child of God, and I'm a child of God. Let's do this together. And in the same way, when we disciple people, we can come alongside them in a sense like equals and say, let's grow in Jesus together. Let's pray together. Let's Bible study together. Let's talk about life together. Let's pray together about the things that hold us back. And then Paul also says that they were like a mother, a nursing mother caring for her children. When a mom is nursing her babies, that's like all that she can do. When they're newborns, the newborn only relies on the nursing mother. Nobody else can satisfy that nursing newborn because the mother alone could satisfy what that newborn needed for nutrients and for, for food. And so when a mom is nursing her babies, there's no sharing the load. In several hours increments, there's feeding to be done. The baby is totally dependent on mom, and the baby's nutrition comes totally from this, from her. And more than this, the mother is willing to give up personal space and sleep and strength to care for and nurture that baby. When I went from being a, a married woman to being a married woman with a newborn, I had no idea the kind of transition that would cause for my life. It was huge and it was hard and there were so many things that I was learning. Can any other woman in this room testify with me? It totally turns life upside down even when we have people to come alongside and help us. But as a nursing mom, I was the only one who could feed Grayson. Dan couldn't do it. <laughs> He could drive. <laughs> and so, and so, like, it was my prerogative, and I loved Grayson. I loved him to lay down my own life for him. I loved him. But it was hard, agonizing work sometimes, just lack of sleep and no personal space and painful and all of these things. And I had so many women come up to me, and they're like, oh, you have a newborn. Isn't it wonderful? There's like no better thing than being a mom. It's magical. And I was like, this is not magical. <laughs> and the saving grace that encouraged my soul is a mom walked up to me at some point and she said, isn't it a labor of love? And I said, yes, you understand. <laughs> because as much as I loved Grayson, as much as I would lay down my sleep and my life for the little guy, it was hard work. And I didn't like it all the time. And it wasn't easy all the time. And it wasn't always rewarding to me personally. I might be a horrible person, but I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> but I love the term labor of love because it really got me through those tough moments that I could recognize that when it's hard, it's a labor of love. When it's unenjoyable, it's a labor of love. When it's inconvenient, it's a labor of love, and I'm going to keep nurturing and pouring into my son 
because I want him to thrive. And when we're discipling, when Paul discipled the church, he acted like a nursing mother because this church was a newborn baby. And he knew that he couldn't neglect the church and he couldn't neglect the new believers because they were wanting to thrive in their walk with Jesus. And so when we are nurturing people in our life to know Jesus better, I want you to get that image in your mind. It's my job. This newborn might not make it if I don't pray, if I don't intentionally pour God's word into them, if I don't reach out and check on them if they're having a hard time. That's a lot, that's a lot of responsibility, right? We're all called to this labor of love, just like Paul was. And Paul also says that his role to the church, to Thessalonica, was like a fatherly role too. He used his authority in the Thessalonian church not in an authoritarian kind of way of punishing and being stern and all these things. He used his leadership with words that build up and correct and encourage and admonish and fed them and grew them and helped them to be strong in the Lord, helped them to stand up. He gave advice to people who were learning how to follow Jesus even if it didn't please them or make him feel comfortable. And all that he said, he encouraged them to not live for themselves, but to live for God's glory and to build God's influence in their world. His unshakable focus of camaraderie, nurturing care, and diligent words is what he used to disciple the believers in Thessalonica. Discipleship requires unshakable focus. So just like Paul, we need to come alongside people to disciple them. We don't want to lord our knowledge over them and be authoritarian in their lives and pride and arrogance and judgment. We want to come alongside and join people in their suffering and in their, in their rejoicing and their celebrations. We come alongside people and we help them to use all of those life experiences to grow in their relationship with the Lord. Sometimes people mess up. Sometimes they give in to temptation, and it's so easy as young believers and as old believers to think, I messed up again. I just quit it all. And that's where we come in as disciplers is to say, no, no, God is just. He is just to forgive us. Whenever we need to repent, he's just, and he'll forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us. And his mercies are new every morning. Don't give up. Come with me. I'll hold you up. Let's go to Jesus together. Discipleship requires unshakable motivation. Discipleship requires unshakable focus. And finally, discipleship requires unshakable trust. So Dan showed us a uh, slide last week, and he explained that the Thessalonian church was producing a ripple effect around the area of the world that they were in. And so Jesus was discipling Paul and Silas, right? They were discipled by Christ. And then the Thessalonians were discipled by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And then around, the, around Thessalonica, we get this ripple effect out to the Macedonians and the Achaeans. And they all were coming to know the Lord because the Thessalonians were diligent in their discipleship and calling other people to follow Jesus as well. And so this was all accomplished without the help of social media, without newspapers, without the news, without, I mean, printed Bibles. They didn't have a Bible back then, and yet they were growing in their walk with the Lord. And so it makes me think, how? How was this being accomplished without all of these tools that we use today to grow 
ourselves in Jesus and to grow other people in Jesus. And we see that answer in verse 13. We never stop thanking God that when you, Thessalonians, received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Truth is hard to swallow sometimes, isn't it? We can get really reactionary when someone tells us the truth, whether they tell it to us in love or they tell it to us in our face. <laughs> we can be tempted to argue or excuse or be defensive when people tell us the truth. And this church didn't do any of those things. They accepted Paul's message as if it were from the very words of God because they were. They trusted in God's power to save through Jesus. They trusted that Jesus is the only way to salvation, even in the face of persecution, being kicked out of families and physically harmed and people dying from, from because they believed that Jesus was the way to God. They accepted God's word, and then they proactively grew in God's word. The word of God continued to grow in them because they proactively believed the message. So I don't know about you, you might be a better person than me. I think we've already established that from earlier. <laughs> but when someone gives me a corrective word, my first response is, <laughs> even if I know it's true, it's still just like, that hurts. I don't want to agree with that right now. Why'd you tell me that? And then like to give excuses and stuff. And I don't want to be like that, but it's just the natural tendency of like when people tell us a corrective word, for us to feel uncomfortable and defensive and argumentative. And sometimes I have to swallow that down and pause and say, okay, Lord, this person loves me and they love you. What am I supposed to do with this information? Because I know this is your word to my life to help me to grow in Jesus. And when we reach out to the Lord and we, we humbly say, okay, Lord, your word has taken root in my life through this person how can I grow in this? Then the Lord can continue that work in our hearts so we can grow, so we can prosper in following Jesus, and then we can bring other people along to follow with us. I'm constantly amazed how when I correct my kids, they usually receive the correction, usually. We're still working, right? My kids aren't perfect. But it's like they know that their job as children is to learn, that's all they're required to do right now. When they're playing, they're learning. When they're going to school, they're learning. When I'm disciplining them, they're learning. When they're at home, they're learning. Like they are learning life right now. Their job as children is to learn. And that doesn't change for us because like children, our father has learning opportunities for us. I think we get older and older, either in our faith or in, in our self, in our bodies, and we get older and we start to get settled in our thinking and thinking that this is the way I do life now, and so that's not going to change very easily. But the Lord wants us to have a teachable heart. He wants us to trust him in his word when he gives us a word that we can grow by. Because true life-changing discipleship requires unshakable trust. So tonight we've looked at the Thessalonian church and we've seen how discipleship is a proactive experience. It isn't something that just happens accidentally, like we wake up and we're closer to Jesus the next day. 
It takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of proactivity, and it takes a lot of repentance and a lot of continual seeking after the heart of God. And then to disciple other people, that's very intentional. We have to tend our garden. We have to help it to be nurtured and help it to grow. It's intentional work. And so when we're discipling others, our motives are to be founded in God and not in other people. We need to keep focused on building God's work and building others up so they can grow in the Lord too. We need to keep focused on being approachable in our hearts and in our spirit so we can learn and grow. When we're discipling others and being discipled ourselves, we need to trust that God's word is working through us and in us and we're to be filled with his, his word and not our own. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for discipling us. Thank you, Lord, that we get to know you and that you don't give up on us. I'm so thankful, God, that you grow us and you put people in our lives and you surround us with your word. You don't let us go. You just don't let us go. You continually pursue our hearts, God. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for discipling us, God. And then, Lord, I ask that you would help us to be aware of the platforms that you have put in our life. God, that we would use those platforms to lead other people to Jesus, to lead other people closer to your heart, God. And Father, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, it's so easy to fall in that pitfall of pleasing people and putting people on pedestals because it hurts when we're rejected. It hurts, Lord, when our family is against us because of us following Jesus. It hurts when we lose friends and coworkers, God because we've said something for your heart, for your sake. Lord, if there's any hurt going on in this room, if someone's been hurt so bad, they, they kind of just have gotten quiet and they've um, closed themselves off to being bold in their witness for you and their discipling for you, God, I pray that you would give them a fresh outpouring of your spirit, that you would fill them with your courage, a supernatural courage and strength that they could do the work, that they can be the people that you have called them to be from before time began. Lord, we love you. We want to see your kingdom grow. We want to see you be glorified, God, and help us to do that together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.